Welcome to the Accountants Exposed podcast, where we create light bulb moments for our listeners by exposing the journeys, secrets, and insights of some of the top players in accounting. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Edelstein, Director and Founder of Recruitment Expert, a specialist accounting recruitment agency working across Australia, New Zealand, and Asia Pacific. Hope everyone has had a great start to the new year, which is well and truly in full swing. Today, I'm really pleased to have Chris Hooper, the accounting futurist in our podcast. Chris has been in the industry for over 14 years now and used to be the director of the Future Accountants Network, an organization on a mission to educate tomorrow's accountants as well as being the director for Startup Adelaide and an academic at Adelaide's universities, not to mention his journey building a global accounting practice. He's a regular on the speaker circuit and also consults to accounting practices to help them modernize their firms. He's taken home a lot of awards and has had an immense amount of experience in the industry with many successes and some failures that we can all learn from a lot. I certainly learned a lot. I hope you do as well. Please enjoy. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the Accountants Exposed podcast. Now, I'm really glad you can join us today. Thanks for having me on. Now, you've had this whirlwind of a journey over the last 14 years from a cadet in a reputable Adelaide firm to becoming a partner in your early 20s, I believe, um, to then amalgamating multiple accounting technology firms into one company, going global, planning to listen to ASX, getting venture capital funding for it all, and then came all crashing down at the end of last year. So there's definitely a lot to talk about there. Um, <laughs> Where do you want to start? Well, I was going to say, let's go back to the beginning. Now, the young aspiring accountant, Chris. Um, yeah. What made you get to accounting straight out of high school? Mainly because I was interested in business. Um, you know, I had a whole bunch of like, you know, side hustles going on through high school. Um, and I think I was really good at the business part, but, you know, pretty average at the, uh, you know, I guess the accounting side of things. And I'd once heard that, you know, accounting was the language of business and I felt like I was kind of illiterate in my teens. So that was kind of what prompted me to go there and, you know, learn how to do all of that. Okay. I, it's actually the same reason why I went into accounting as well. Um, the language of business aspect I, it definitely yeah, resonates right. with me. Um, and and it, it's great, especially when you get into audit, which was my cadetship. You, you definitely get a lot of exposure to to CEOs and CFOs as a little 17-year-old kid yeah. um, and, and learn your credits and debits before you even start uni, which is crazy. What, what sort of um, side hustles were you into at uni? Um, so the first one was like professional wrestling, um, and that business is still actually <laughs> running here in Adelaide. Um, I, I got out of it at like 15, but uh, the Basso brothers who, you know, kind of uh, pioneered it, um, kept going with it. And, you know, it's yeah still running today under the name of Riot City Wrestling. You know, and as in bringing we, wrestlers for an event, or actually you like wrestling and charging for it. Like, you know, WWE. So you know, the training side. You know, was a was a you know, uh, uh, I guess revenue stream, and then obviously the events in terms of ticket sales and merchandise and you know food and drink and all of that sort of stuff. That was a, a revenue stream. And you were fifteen um, at that time. Uh, well, I was thirteen when it like all started, um, and I left at about fifteen or sixteen. Wow! 
Okay, very cool. It Not was something super dodgy, man. A bunch of 13-year-old kids teaching a bunch of... Actually charging money to teach other 13-year-old kids how to beat the snot out of each other. And the gym that we were actually <laughs> training out of um, was nice enough to actually let us host uh, like an exhibition match at one of their kickboxing-like meetups. Um, was and, this like after yeah. watching Fight Club? No, 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 this was before Fight Club even came out as a movie, man. Um, this was just uh, from watching all the WWF, you know, back in the 90s. <laughs> Actually, you're right. I remember as a kid, I was definitely addicted to that stuff as well. Wow, very cool. Any other cool side hustles besides that one? Well, the uh, wrestling thing kind of spun out into the, the gym, fitness, personal training type thing. Um, so I went to the Australian Institute of Fitness at 15. Um, to sort of get all my PT cred and all of that sort of stuff and was one, running like a dodgy gym operation um, out of my parents' shed at the time, um, which was good fun um, <laughs> and super dodgy. Um, yeah, so those were probably the main two that occupied my time at high school. Very cool. Did any of them actually make money? I mean, they all made money, but like, you know, by by nowadays standards not much but by like a 15 year old kid's standard i was like you know the highest income <laughs> kid in school yeah because i was working at big w almost 30 or 40 hours a week as well plus you know the extra yeah. two or three hundred dollars a week i was um you know getting um from the the pt stuff so i was bringing in like you know 500 to 700 dollars a week as a, as a 15 16 year old kid which is a lot of money for for a kid pretty damn good especially back then yeah. especially in adelaide yeah, um, yeah exactly. did you know much about accounting like you know out of all the no no no, no. i was really good at making money and really good at spending it <laughs> Because, like, did someone give you the idea to go, hey, you should apply for cadetships. Like, there's accounting firms. Like, I didn't know until someone told well, me that there's accounting the firms that do I, cadetships. I got onto that, right, was that when I, you know, shut down my uh, dodgy gym operation in my parents' shed, um, I actually started working, you know, salary-wise out of, like, a, a legit gym. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the members there when I was actually, I've got to go back a step. So, after I had, like, I was talking to a mate of mine. She was also a personal trainer. And, you know, she said, you know, Chris, it's been a fun year because she did it in her gap year, like the training thing after high school. It's been mm -hmm. a fun year, but, you know, I've got to get on the straight and narrow. I'm going to go to uni next year, blah, blah, blah. And we were just sitting at the pub talking. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. What are you, what are you studying? Um, and she's like, accounting. I'm like, accounting. Tell me more about that, you know. Um, and then she sort of gave me the lowdown on it. And all of that. And I, I remember going home and kind of going, reading more about accounting and then Googling like how to get into high school without year 12 or no, how to get into university without year 12. And there was a pretty, you know, clear pathway for me to get into university, into an accounting degree through like the vet track, so to speak, um, with a diploma mm -hmm. of business. So, yeah, basically, once that was done, the cause was set in motion. I was enrolled and I'd resigned from the gym and I was saying goodbye to members and stuff like that. And there was one girl in particular, Carly, who I'm, you know, when I said goodbye to her, she reached into her handbag and gave me a business card and it said like senior accountant on it. And she's like, call me after your first week at school. Um, and I did. And I <laughs> caught up with her repeatedly. And she was the one who told me that I had to get a foot in the door, you know, early in, in accounting. That's what she did. And it worked, you know, exceptionally well. I think she was only 24 at the time when I was 19. Um, and she was already a senior um, at a, at a mid-tier firm and doing exceptionally well. I think she's the CFO of a publicly listed company now. Okay. 
So a, a thanks to her, basically. Yeah. And did you know like whether you wanted to get into audit or tax or? Um, you know, just, that whatever stage, they put you into. Like foot in the door. Um, yeah, you know, I think the, the saying was it doesn't matter if you're like, you know, mopping the floors uh, in the toilets of an accounting firm, <laughs> at least you're, you're in there, you know. Um, and I think that's a really You're, you're in corporate Australia. Yeah, like I think that's an important attitude. Like you just have to be in because if you're in the same room as them, you're networking and you're learning and you're making connections and all of that sort of stuff. Um, she also told me that I would learn more in my first week, you know, on the job than I would in my first year at uni. And she was absolutely right about that, I think. I second that. Um, and what did you end up doing? Were you in tax? Were you in audit? Were you so, in super? Yeah, that, well, I, was I your... started out in tax. I started out in tax, mm -hmm. but I think it was important for me, and again, at Carly's behest, to rotate around as many sort of areas of the practice as I possibly could, rather than kind of getting stuck and progressing through one. And I think that came at the, the expense of some sort of career advancement, because obviously, if you start in tax, and then you just double down on tax and study real hard in tax and yeah. do lots of tax, you know, in four years time, you, you'll probably be a you know, pretty good senior tax accountant, you know, um, whereas I kind of, you know, spent a year in tax and then moved over to audit for a little while and then did some time in superannuation and, and so forth, uh, even did some time in like mm -hmm. management accounting type stuff. And I think for me, that was very important in terms of becoming a well-rounded uh, accountant because somewhere between those four years at that firm, I had kind of come to the conclusion that I was going to start my own practice. And then I was thinking about, okay, well, what do I need to learn in order to do that from a technical standpoint, you know? And that mm. was like, okay, cool. I need to move around every single area of, you know, your typical practice in order to be a, a well-rounded sole practitioner. Yeah. What made you, I guess, or what sparked that thought that, you know what, I, I think I'll start my own accounting practice one day? Um, because I understood how good the accounting business was. You know, if you, you rewind and go, you know, here's Chris, little entrepreneur, wants to learn accounting to, to just be better at business, right? I get into an accounting mm. firm to do my like apprenticeship, so to speak, and then I realize how good the business is there, you know. And if I've got a choice as a 22, 23-year-old between starting a gym, let's say, versus starting an accounting practice, well, you know, I know which one's going to make me more money at the end of the day. So I think me deciding to open a practice was the realization about how good uh, the accounting profession is from a business standpoint in terms of profitability and, and cash flow and also saleability, you know. Um, it blew my mind that, you know, accounting practices basically sell for dollar for dollar of revenue. Like, um, you know, don't even need to look at the P&L. You just look at the top line and, you know, that's the value of the firm. And I think that really encouraged me as, as I was starting out because you'd sign on like a new $1,000 a year client or something like that. But it wasn't actually just $1,000 a year in additional revenue that you were bolting onto the practice. It was $1,000 in goodwill you know, as an asset that you had essentially created mm. out of thin air. And I think that was when the, the, I, and yeah, like to be, to be real, man, I, <laughs> there was a moment there for a year or two where I was actually booking internally generated goodwill on the balance sheet of, of the practice so that I could actually see that number going up. 
It's a good way to think about it. I don't think many accountants will look at it that way. Well, I, I well, certainly I did it where... You recognize it's internally it, generated goodwill, are you? But, like, you see that strength no. in the balance sheet and you're like, yeah, damn, this is a good business. <laughs> to be right. clear, like, it is, it's a highly liquid industry in terms of sales. You know, you... You can sell a whole practice pretty quickly um, with very little marketing compared to every other, you know, um, business transaction I've been involved in on buy side and sell side. Accounting firms just sell real quick. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Especially, look, the good ones in capital cities and regional areas, they still go for like 60 cents to 80 cents in a dollar. But in metro, Mm -hmm. a dollar for a dollar 10 these days. Yeah, I know. It's crazy Um, when I see the north of a dollar. That's nuts, isn't it? Hmm. What would you advise school leavers these days, people that are thinking of what to do with their lives slash potentially considering a career you know, in business, finance, et cetera? Is that a path they should follow, the whole cadetship thing? or? Uh, look, absolutely, the cadetship thing. I, and I think that applies not just in accounting, but in any, any business, any profession. Um, I think it's weird that in you know, TAFE world or VET world, let's say you're becoming a plumber, yeah, you go to school to learn plumbing, but then you're also learning on the job for your apprenticeship. Why we don't have apprenticeships in the legal profession, in the accounting profession, in the the journalism profession, et cetera, et cetera, is, you know, I'm just at a bit of a loss. We're supposed to spend three to four years at university and then go out and look for a job with no skills, you know, because when you think Mm -hmm. about it from the employer's perspective, whether you hire someone fresh out of high school or fresh out of university, they're probably still going to be about as useless to you as you know, as each other out of out of the first year. Maybe the the first year out of uni will learn a bit quicker than the high school kid, but you know, you've still got that lost year basically in training and learning curve. Yeah. I mean a lot of a lot of kids these days do the whole internship thing during summer and stuff like that, but uh, we'll work experience yeah, which for I, a couple I'm, of months. I'm but... a big fan of as well. Like if you can't get a job or a cadetship at a firm, you know, do your summer internship or, mm. you know, like like Carly said, like mop the floors at, a, at the accounting firm. Like <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just get you in just there. Get in. Yeah. And waiting till graduation is the worst thing that you could possibly do. And what would you say, like for a typical high schooler or even graduate, you know, the options that they have, there's two things that they kind of have to decide. One is big four material, like small firm and two audit or tax. How would you go about navigating those decisions if you were in their shoes? Or what advice would you give Um, them? I think it depends on sort of what the end game is. You know, if you want to be a partner of a big four. In fact, no, I'll retract that because I know someone who basically leapfrogged from small tier into top tier as part of her strategy to end up in big four. It was very impressive, the moves that she made there. Um, So you don't have to go straight to big four. Um, And then vice versa, you can go from big four to, to smaller tier. So you know what? I would probably say when I think about the people that I know in the profession that have moved between, I don't think it's that big a, a decision. I don't think it's that important a decision in terms of whether you go, um, you know, big four, uh, mid-tier or bottom tier. I would say that smaller firms are actually easier to get into than big firms, you know, because when mm-hmm. I ask my students, you know, at university, name as many accounting firms as you possibly could, you know, at best I'd get 10 10 accounting firms. I'm like, how many accounting firms do you yeah. think there are in the country? You know, and and no one is applying for jobs, you know, at Joe Bloggs and Associates, you know. So you've mm. got a decent opportunity of of getting a job at Joe Bloggs and Associates, basically just cold calling them um, and building a relationship yeah. with the team and the 
partners there than you would, you know, just another resume on a pile at PwC, you know. So I, I think it, it probably is easier to go where the competition isn't and uh, sneak your way into smaller firms. Um, and I think just on that as well, I think that the learning experience is vastly different between the two. I think that the big four have got very structured education and training programs in place that give you a very sort of like holistic, like well-rounded education that doesn't miss a, a single thing. Whereas I think hmm. the the partner interaction that you get at smaller firms, you can't get at the at the big four, you know. As, as a 19, 20-year-old kid, I was spending just an eye-watering amount of time with, with partners and with senior associates at my firm, um, that I, and I just wouldn't get an opportunity to speak with people that knowledgeable and that experienced in, in the big four that early on, you know what I mean? Because they've just got more layers of management, you know? Yeah. No, no, I 100% agree. And the, don't, I don't know if you'd agree with this. I think that's pros and cons to both, which is, which is what you Absolutely. mentioned. I think if you go for the big four, you get the big four in your CV and you get the better training probably, but you are more pigeonholed Absolutely, into I think, an yeah, area. Not, um, like even if you're doing uh, one thing I always tell to my candidates is like, look, if you go into big four, not only are you pigeonholed into like order, but you're pigeonholed into financial services of order and all you'll be doing is banks, especially yeah. in the in the large yeah. capitals. Adelaide, less, less yeah, so. Yeah. so um, if, you, if you're doing tax... Yeah, if you're doing tax, you like you might just end up in the GST team, and all you'd be doing for the next ten years is GST, which is Absolutely. completely the opposite of your approach, which is becoming a well-rounded accountant. And so you get a lot better exposure in, in smaller firms. So I think a mid-tier is a good compromise where you get kind of good exposure, Absolutely. good training, a bit of both, but and you still get a good name on your on your CV. So yeah, that, that, that's if, usually if my corporates advice. recognize the name, you know, if you know, let's say that you want to go work at a publicly listed company. If the the finance manager or CFO or whoever recognizes the name of the firm on the resume, and it doesn't have to be big four, I think that helps your prospects. If you know the plan is to end up in in corporate, yeah, yeah, like your RSMs and BDOs, etc. Yeah, exactly. So you finished uni, you finished your CA, and then you went into commerce for a while. Why the transition? Um, I wanted to put some space between, I guess, my old practice and starting a new practice, mostly out of respect for the partners there. Okay. So I didn't want to leave on the, you know, I'm quitting and I'm starting my own practice note, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it conjures up, you know, being escorted out of the business by security guards and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I had no interest in sort of quote unquote stealing clients or anything like that. I was going to do everything sort of the hard way. And yeah, so it was mostly out of respect for the partners that I, you know, took the the cliched route of going like, oh yeah, I got a job in corporate. And nobody contends with that or disputes it because they know that corporate pays almost twice as much as public. Um, and they're like, cool, congratulations, <laughs> you know, good luck. And then good yeah, spent about best, a, yeah. Yeah, I've spent a year or two. Well, you could imagine it would have been a vastly different conversation if I said I'm quitting to start a practice, you know. Mm, so, yeah, like that, I spent a, a year or two there. Um, and I learned a few more things while I was there, which I think, you know, I don't regret the time spent there. And I think it also bought me a lot of time to sort of to contemplate and actually start making active moves to setting up the practice. Because when I'm working in mm -hmm. commerce, I suddenly have no ca uh, conflict of interest. Does that make sense? So mm. I'm not like conspiring to start an accounting firm while I'm working for an accounting practice. I'm working for, you know, a rail freight company 
um, who couldn't care less if I'm starting an accounting practice on the side, you know, at nights and weekends. Hmm. What was your experience like in, in commerce and especially as a, with the backdrop of coming out of an accounting firm? Because it's, um, it's a tradition like that it, many people ache on the plate and, and then do. You know, it was I mean, it was awesome, especially working for Downer Group, which like for their rail division. So I think Downer has like 20,000 people working for it. So it's a huge company and their mm. rail company is just a small section of that. And, you know, uh, maintenance was a, a smaller section of a smaller section of a business unit. My office was kind of like a tin shed attached to a, a workshop. So on site, you had maybe like 10 white collared staff and then like 190 blue collared staff. Yeah. So it was a completely different experience to what I'd been used to, like working in heavy, heavy industry. And you know, did you I see had any of your did you see any of your ex WWF, you know, colleagues there? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Um, but you know, it was it was interesting just seeing, I guess, the the commercial implications of your work if that makes sense you know for example a locomotive would you know derail or crash right and you'd be doing part of the insurance claim on behalf of the client you would see photos of the of the crash and you know the the accident and all of that and then you'd spend the next three weeks kind of like itemize the damage you know talking to engineers and estimators and all of that sort of stuff uh, you know, and it was interesting, I guess, seeing that cause and effect. And I think you don't get to see that working on clients, if that makes sense. You, you, you've got a very bird's eye view mm-hmm. in, in public practice working on clients because you only see, you know, the final figures in the, the general ledger. Outcome. Correct. Whereas I guess working in commerce, you see every transaction and you care about every transaction that goes through the general ledger. I'd, I would have situations where I'd spend 30 minutes talking about a $200 charge to the work in progress register because it, for me, in the context of my role, that was material, you know, for a public practice accountant working in audit or tax or wherever, that's not material. Nobody cares. You know, it's a rounding error. But in commerce, the materiality shrinks right down. Did it actually help you become a better accountant and especially a better practitioner when, once you did open up your own firm? I think in terms of like commercial acumen, let's call it, particularly from a public, like a listed public company perspective, it did in terms of the corporate governance and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I think it really was the missing, the missing piece to, I guess, becoming a well-rounded accountant was that time in, in commerce. I don't think it was, was essential to my work in, in public practice, but it certainly felt like the, let's call it the cherry on top of my, my early career. Hmm. Okay. So what would you advise like an accountant, uh, say a young accountant that's actually pretty much every, every accountant ends up in that same spot where they've got their three years, they've done their CA, and they're thinking, cool, I've got my CA, what's next? A lot of my friends have moved to commerce, they're paying more. Kind of tired of doing timesheets, you know. Should I move <laughs> yeah, to e-commerce slash government, or should I, you know, stay around and progress and maybe become a partner or a manager or something? What What, what are the factors to take into account, and, and how do you go around once again navigating that decision? You know, what What do you take into account? How do you make that? I think money and lifestyle are probably the the most important considerations that go into that. Working in commerce mm-hmm. was amazing in terms of finishing at five o'clock. 
you know? Um, <laughs> like, for me, I had to leave at five o'clock. It was kind of like a work health safety thing that I left on that shift. You know, there was a, a change of shift in the, the factory and the, the company was real big on, you know, what applies to the blue collar applies to the white collar, you know? So, I mean, that, that had okay. like um, that, you know, downside of, uh, I guess, the drug testing and the, the physicals. So I needed to get a yearly physical. I needed to do a physical to, to even get the job, which was insane because it's a white-collar job. And the doctor joked at me saying, yep. this is in case a locomotive, you know, crashes through your office. We need to see if you're fit enough to jump out of the way. You know, <laughs> it, you know, yep. it was obvious, obviously a joke, but it was this philosophy that they had at the company that meant like what applies to the blue-collar applies to the white-collar because it was a super unionized mm. industry. And by the way, I, 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 don't know I, I think we should point out that I think we should point out to everyone just because, like, you go into commerce does not mean you will finish at five. I think Chris, you had an exceptional set of circumstances um, no, there. I think, I, I think um, by and large, um, your odds of finishing at five o'clock are much higher in commerce than they are in public. Let's let's put it that way. That that, that is true. Yeah. Look, I, like, more likely I, than I, less I likely, as they say in order, right? Correct. More likely than less likely. Look, and I do know some like some crazy mofos that do work in commerce, and they still work public hours. Um, and you know, I guess more power to them, <laughs> or maybe they should reassess some decisions. But look, I think money, money, and and lifestyle are important decisions. I think lifestyle is better in commerce. I think there's less stress, and I think there's there is a higher chance of you knocking off at five o'clock. Money-wise, the money is initially better in commerce. So there's this like little sugar hit that you get when you transition out. But when you kind of look forward in terms of career trajectory, your odds of becoming CFO, yeah, which is like the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar plus sort of territory, your odds of becoming CFO are are pretty thin because the let's say that the pyramid in the org chart gets very thin at the pointy end, you know. Whereas mm. when you you look at public practice, I think there is a higher chance of becoming a partner and earning 250k a year in, in, in a public accounting firm. But obviously, you're going to have to work the, the hours for a long time in order to actually achieve that. Okay. That's, no, it's good insight. What would you say on the flip side? What are the downsides of moving to commerce? If, if, if there are any, actually. <laughs> no, 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 there are downsides, absolutely. I think the first one is that you're pretty much like the only accountant there, you know what I mean? Like, in public accounting, you're surrounded by accountants, so I think the learning is is better. Whereas in mm-hmm. commerce, you know, yeah, yeah, there are other accountants, but they're all, like, specialized into their little thing, you know? So you've got the person from AR, you've got the person from AP, the person from payroll, the person from, you know, uh, contracts or whatever. Like, so they've all got their little corner of the, the sky. So I don't think it's as easy mm-hmm. to get sort of like, uh, I guess, the same level of mentoring and camaraderie or peer support that you, that you would in public accounting. You know, because in public accounting, you can spin your chair around and go, you know, hey, Joe, what do you think of this? You know, be it a tax problem or whatever. <laughs> you can't do that in commerce. You know, unless you're in a huge company where you have a tax team of like, you know, 100 people, you just you can't get that kind of like brains trust, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else? Um, no, I'd probably say that was that was the only thing I, I really missed um, moving from, from public to, to commerce. 
Okay. Oh, and by the way, you, you obviously chose to do CA. The other big decision that I wanted to kind of run past you is CA or CPA. You know, I get asked that uh, a lot by, by candidates. I did not get and... a choice in the matter, um, and most people don't. <laughs> I didn't think you would. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Does it matter, though, like from your experience? Because I know sure. if you uh, do work I'm, for a CA. I'm firm, not even a uh, member of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. You know, I got my graduate diploma and then I got the membership form and I'm like, do I actually need, I, I, and I asked them, I'm like, do I actually need this to practice as an accountant? No, you don't. You need your tax agent license, but you don't need your CA. Yep. Because I read through, and I, I guess a lot of people don't, but I read through all of their bylaws and stuff like that. And it's like, I don't agree with half of these. Why would I sign up to it? <laughs> Which bylaws? Like do not agree the, the ones in particular, the one that says I must maintain a partnership of over 50% chartered accountants in order to be a chartered accounting firm, you know? And at this stage, I was contemplating going into business with my best friend, Marcus, who was not a chartered accountant. He was a bookkeeper by trade. So I was already, you know, breaking the bylaws from day one. And, you know, then it kind of clicked as to why I got kind of forced into doing CA. Because if you want, you know, if it's a CA firm, you're going to be forced into doing CA and you won't even get a look in at CPA because they have to satisfy that bylaw. Like if you're a CPA and you're working for a CA firm, like your odds of be becoming a partner of that firm are infinitely smaller, you know, um, and then vice versa. So if you're at a CPA firm and you're a CA, your odds of being mm. a partner. Actually, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know if CPA's got that in their bylaws. I imagine they would be, but they are certainly in the, the CAs. Um, so, yeah, I guess that was my, my take on that. In terms of picking which one, it, like, it really depends on the firm that you're at. Okay. Are there any benefits doing one over the other? That you no, would, I don't like, think consider? so. I, I, don't think, I don't think clients really care. I don't think employers in commerce care. It's, it's an, you, you see it in all of the job adverts, don't you? CA slash yeah. CPA. Yeah, or CPA. But they don't yeah. care. Clients definitely don't care. The only people that care are the people in your firm, you know, the other CAs or the other CPAs. So I think that's what will be the deciding factor. Hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of my take on it. No, I appreciate it. And I think, look, it's true. At the end of the day, your clients don't give a damn. Like if you can do the job and you give them good advice and you save them some money on tax, they're happy. They don't care whether yeah, you could yeah. be an NIA for all they care. Um, now, you, you mentioned you joined up with your best friend, Marcus. Tell us a bit more about that because, I mean, obviously, even throughout commerce, you, you were there for two years, you always had the practice on your mind. So was that something you guys have been talking about for, for a while now? Is that sort of fucked no, over a drink? Kind of like park, a, yeah, yeah, very much. Actually, repairing Mark's dad's uh, fence. Mm -hmm. You know, Julio was talking. He'd uh, run a, like a bookkeeping practice for, you know, probably 20-odd years, um, which Marcus was working for. And it was just the two you know, of them. Julia, sorry, yeah, it was yeah. just the two of them. Um, okay, correct. And Julia was saying, "I'm thinking of selling the practice." And I just immediately—I didn't even think about it. I just immediately said, "Sell it to us." You know, I didn't even put it in thought. <laughs> and that's kind of you know how that sort of you know expanded uh, from from there. So we we kind of started you know our first year in practice with a, a small tranche of fees of the clients of Julio's that were actually ready and willing to to come over. And then I guess similarly, it actually created a nice easy off ramp for Julio. So it wasn't just this line in the sand, boom, he's retired. It just gradually wound down his hours um, as Marcus and I started winding up out. Mm -hmm. 
it was a gradual transition. It wasn't like you left down and then you started straight away. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was really good for all concerned in that respect. Okay, but you but you transitioned like it, it wasn't like you left your commerce role and then went straight into it. It was like a ramp no, up. So I, I'd actually started taking fees probably halfway through that commerce role. Um, that was kind of when the succession okay. plan really sort of um, started kicking in. I can't remember specific, you know, specifics of the timeline, but I know that they overlap. Okay. And what do you think about like this whole idea of getting into partnership with one of your friends? Because I mean, there's, you know, a partnership and I've been in a business <laughs> partnership. It's kind of like marriage, you know, it's, it's got its good and bad very, you know, element very to careful. it. <laughs> I would say very, how very would you advise uh, like how would you advise navigating that relationship and making sure you you know you said be careful but like what are you what should you be aware of and what should be put in place to protect you or ensure its success um i don't know because i've had more failed partnerships than i've had successful ones i think i got lucky with marcus and that was because we went through primary school and secondary school together um mm-hmm. so i'd known him for 15 odd years you know, prior to going into business with him. We were always involved in like these sketchy little side hustles in high school together. And I think there was just a very clear relationship from the get-go. And we don't even have a partnership agreement um, between the two of us. It's all just done on a handshake. Um, And I think much to our wives' dismay, like I'll just hand Marcus $500, you know, out of the blue. And it's like, because it's the same money. We don't care. He'll fix me up later type thing, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, and we've always kind of had that relationship and we, we still do. Um, but that was a total fluke. There was no, there was no like thought or foresight or planning with the partnership agreement or anything like that into it. And then conversely, I've had very highly structured partnerships with hundreds of pages of legal documents and tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> lawyer fees that have gone to absolute shit you know and you know those contracts are only as good as your ability to litigate them and i think people need to know that that yeah you can get a contract drawn up for a thousand dollars you know and it's like trademarks and patents you can get a trademark but can you afford the hundred thousand dollars it's going to cost to litigate that trademark if someone you know breaks it you know probably not Mm. um so i don't think i i have an answer to that question okay so there's nothing that you would advise a young aspiring account that wants to go out on their own, potentially with a friend, potentially my, join my a partnership. My would be don't do it. You know, I think if in doubt, don't do it. Okay. As in the alternative, go, go for the alternative, which is start out on your own? Go out on your own, you know. Okay. Work with people. And I, I, I work with plenty of people, but I don't have to be in partnership with them. You just do work with people and do it on a very commercial basis. You just don't need to be in partnership with people anymore. Yeah, and and it's that simple. Okay. Well, I remember that was kind of one of the essences of the whole business plan of behind a codex, right? Bringing a whole bunch of Correct. sole practitioners together. Uniting the sole practitioners. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, how did you guys, I guess, get... Well, I mean, you had clients from the bookkeeping, but then converting them into compliance clients, which I think is what you told me is how you decided to grow the practice. Just tell us, like, you know, you're, what, in your early 30s, 23, 24, probably at this stage? Yeah, yeah, 24, let's say. How do you go out and get clients and convince them to come aboard? 
you know, being a young bloke competing with partners of, you know, the big four, the the small the, or the, the mid-tier firms, et cetera. How do you convince a client to come on board with you and do all the tax work I and think have the credibility? Yeah, as a bookkeeping firm, and I think accountants need to be very aware of this, is that a client sees their bookkeeper once a week, you know, at worst once mm-hmm. a month. They see their tax accountant maybe once a year, at best twice a year. <laughs> Yeah. So it's very easy to, I guess, infiltrate that relationship as the bookkeeper and go, hey, we do tax now. I see the old mates charging you 4000 We'll charge you three. What do you say? You can appreciate how many times we got told no. Not that many. Um, so it's really easy. Because it's a commodity, right? Like the... Correct. Correct. Yeah, so it's especially, especially it's a commodity. Mm. Yep. You know, Rod um, Nixon used to say it's like buying petrol, right? So you don't look at the, the petrol gauge in your car on empty and go, yay, I get to go buy some, some petrol. You go, oh, crap, I've got to go buy petrol. And then you start looking at the signs around the servos and go, well, what's the cheapest? Yep. Or what's the closest or what's the most convenient? They don't, nobody looks for value for, you know, what I mean, like quality or value for money in petrol. They look for, mm. for price and convenience. So, yeah, it was. it's pretty easy for the bookkeeper to grab the compliance work. Okay. So there's that. And then, you know, I was heavily involved in the technology sort of startup scene in Adelaide. Um, and I had a lot of friends that owned, you know, small software development shops and web dev shops and stuff like that. And it was pretty easy for me to get them on board as well because they felt like their accountant didn't even understand what business that they were in. And I did, you know. So the clients that I got on my own sort of volition that weren't sort of Julio's bookkeeping clients were the the clients just in the tech scene in, in Adelaide, that startup scene. Because you've got to remember, this was 2011, man. And, you know, we were a 100% cloud firm with a, with a tax offering in the tech sector for all of these new companies. So it wasn't difficult to, to sort of win clients in that respect. So I think you know, the takeaway on that for listeners is kind of about picking a niche, which I, I think is especially important when you're starting out. Okay. What are some good niches that you would recommend for people starting out now? I've, I've seen people like, you know, friends, you know, niche into hospitality. Like, I think, you know, that's that's really good. Like, it's like, I, you know, I think of... Except one during COVID, particular... maybe. Yeah, I know, right? I don't know how they're doing at the moment. <laughs> but... But they they only do cafes, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like he's written a book about accounting for cafes, you know. Um, you could just get into that sort of that level of focus, which is just which is nuts. So in terms of what niches are good, I think all niches are good. Like I think the best niches to pick are ones that you're genuinely interested in, you know. So if you Makes if you like idea. coffee, yeah, if you like coffee and you like spending time at coffee shops, then niche into coffee you know if you like cars right and hanging around with with mechanics and stuff then go be the accountant that works exclusively for mechanics you know it's not and it's super easy to 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 niche into these things because all of these industries have got these like super niche trade magazines so they'll have like mechanics monthly or something like that and the actual ad buy for getting like an a4 ad in a in mechanics monthly 
it'll cost you like $500 to get a, a full A4 ad, you know. Um, so they've got their like their, their niche blogs, their niche podcasts, their niche influences and all of this sort of stuff. And because it's so niche, the, the cost of marketing and advertising in those spaces is, is really cheap, you know. Plus, you can actually go in and influence that space yourself. So you can get a speaking position at the, you know, mechanics annual, you know, trade show about how to grow no, a profitable, true. you know, mechanic shop. It's, it's really easy to do when you actually start thinking about it. But I think the hardest thing that people find is actually picking one niche in particular. And if you don't pick, then you're basically letting the market pick for you. Hmm. And I think you also did the reverse, right? The, the compliance clients you picked up, you also offered them the bookkeeping to, yes, to increase your revenue on both sides. Correct. They say, um, they've been saying for like, I don't know, five or 10 years now, bookkeeping is dead because of like all the AI stuff and tech stuff. And when zero came in, et cetera. What do you think about that? Because I'm seeing a lot of bookkeeping <laughs> firms pop up. Shout out to Paul Messner. Um, look, I think it, <laughs> it, it's just going to keep going. Uh, I, I've I've been watching the AI hype train for for years, man, and it still hasn't left the station. Um, look, it will <laughs> eventually, but like true AI doesn't even exist, man. Um, so yeah, look, I I, don't, I wouldn't classify it as a growth industry, but I wouldn't necessarily call it on the decline either. I, I certainly wouldn't be ushering my, my three-year-old son into that trajectory because I think in 20 years it might look a little different. <laughs> yep. And, but, you know... But it's still, it's still, there's tax, still a place for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think tax is probably safer than, than bookkeeping is simply because, you know, the government is always just going to change their mind on tax laws, like always. You know, if the two certainties in life are death and taxes, that is 100% true. So I think if you want a safe career, yep. you either become a mortician or a tax accountant. <laughs> um, we'll go with the tax accountant for now. Sounds a bit I think it pays better. more pleasant. Yeah. It pays better as well. Easier to get a date. As hard as it is, as an yeah, account, it's still probably easier than a mortician. Now, in terms of... I guess the clients, how, how quickly did you guys grow? Like as, you know, two young blokes, best friends, you, you had a niche in tech. What was the growth trajectory like? Insanely quick, like breakneck. You're talking like double slash triple revenue every single year for however long, you know, it was. So yeah, it was it was crazy. It was a wild ride because I think we'd hitched our wagon and we've gotten all of the timing right in terms of what market we were niched into. We we're in a, a super fast growing mm. like market with a, a super high tech sort of scalable um, back end in terms of the technology running the firm. And I think we'd done so much patient planning that we were kind of just ready to sort of break out the gate when we did sort of start getting underway. So how did you manage that in terms of that that growth? Um, Working long, long, long hours all the time. How long before you guys hired someone? Um, I couldn't tell you, man. Like within the first year, I'm certain of that. Okay. And I think you also said like you got Rob Nixon pretty much straight away as well. You yeah, yeah. In, so like day like, zero in the first year. The latest year, we tech Yeah. So we were signing. This was back in Rob Nixon's proactive accountant network days. Um, so we mm -hmm. were, we were members of the proactive accountants network, um, from sort of day zero when we started. And that was a really, really good exercise. 
Okay. How did it help you? Because it's not common that, you know, when you start with nothing, you, you hand over that much money to like Rob Nixon or any of the other coaches in the industry to yeah to help you. But it's obviously made um, a difference to your firm. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, I had studied Rob's uh, material for several years prior um, at my old practice who had some sort of subscription with him. Um, so I could read mm-hmm. all of his sort of ebooks and his podcast and so forth. Um, and I, I've listened to one particular, you know, teleseminar thing that he did probably three or four times, you know, before I started my practice. So I think if you think about like the, the coaching thing as, as personal training, you know, and if you say starting a practice for you is like, I'm going to run a marathon. You say, okay, cool. This year, I'm going to run a marathon. I have no training. I'm at sort of very moderate average fitness. Well, what would you do? And I think one of the things, and it's just one, not all of them, you know, because I could spend time on Google. I could just train, spend lots of time in forums, blah, 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 um, and just learn how to do it. Or if I want to fast track it, I would get a coach. Yeah. I I would get Mm -hmm. a coach to keep me accountable and I would get a coach to help me shortcut or like fast track my progress to running that marathon. And I think no one is going to argue with me in any context that I think getting a coach in in, in whatever context is going to help you get the results that you're after quicker, period. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. And what, what were the biggest takeaways, I guess, from having that coaching? Like what, what helped the most in, uh, in that I think the particular time period? I think the the accountability helped the most, being accountable to not only the coach, but then also accountability to my team or, you know, the other members of that, you know, that particular group. I think that was probably the most valuable thing. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning that after Rob Nixon, I joined Entrepreneurs Organization, which Rob is also a, a member of, I think he was the chairman or is still the chairman of the EO Brisbane chapter. Mm-hmm. I joined Entrepreneurs Organization through a program that they call their EO Accelerator Program, which basically helps mm-hmm. businesses that have got over a quarter of a million dollars in revenue. I think that was the minimum threshold. And the purpose of the accelerator is to get them to one million in revenue. So I was in yeah EO Accelerator for about 18 months, I think. And that was kind of similar to to rob nixon except it was more peer based so like peer led versus Mm -hmm. like coach led if that makes sense okay did that get you to your one mil quickly yeah it did in 18 months okay and in terms of i guess the challenges or the pain points what were the biggest ones like growing the firm and and that journey is sort of before you went to a codex so a couple of those, I guess, three, four years when you're growing? There weren't, what were the biggest challenges? There weren't really any any problems, man. You know, in Cirillo Hooper and Company early days, um, what were the challenges? Probably just workload and managing workload. There was just so much work to do. And I think because I was new to it, I, you know, half of the time, I guess from a management perspective, um, I had no idea what I was doing because, you know, three years in an accounting degree and then two years in CA didn't prepare me for the, the business management side of things, which is incidentally why I did, you know, that diploma of management that I got on a scholarship halfway through the practice. And then I sub- followed that up with a, a master's in business because I was grossly mm-hmm. unprepared for the business management side of, of public practice, especially a practice growing that fast. I think if you're growing 20% a year, I think you can manage it because the learning curve is just a little more shallow. 
but yeah, that fast, yeah, was just. I think the learning curve was very steep. But is it is it the people management side, you, you know, bringing them on and managing them, or is it the cash? Like, okay. <laughs> how did you? I mean, how did you go about hiring? Because I think when you have no brand name, like you're not a PwC or an RSM, uh, one of the biggest issues for accounting firms is actually growing. You know, it's a service industry, right? So you can only grow as fast as you employ people. Um, just getting the right people on board. What was your approach in, in A, attracting them, B, retaining uh, we them, had growing? really good partnerships with all three universities. Um, so we offered a, uh, like a very structured intern program, like a summer intern like program that had like a full curriculum and it was very highly regarded by the universities as being sort of like world-class, um, I would argue, mm-hmm. probably better than, than what the other firms were offering. And that's why the universities were so keen on, I guess, sending students our way and recommending our program to their students because it was an accredited course. So you would do an internship at Cirillo Hooper and Company and you would get two courses of credit on your university degree. Um, I think it was two How courses. How did you guys right? come up with that? Well, I used to be on the board of Sorkner, which is a not-for-profit organization with uh, like the director of the industry placement program at the University of South Australia. And she asked me if I would take a student. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of worked together in terms of, um, I guess, developing that program. And then sort of Flinders University came on and uh, Adelaide University came on. And I think about this in hindsight, and I've actually taught at all three universities along that time as well. (laughs) So I guess in terms of getting, you know, the the entry level, like first year or graduate level, um, that it wasn't that difficult um, because I would get to pick them from my classes and from the interns that did placements with us. I think mm. we probably had over 100 interns um, actually do placements with us over the last sort of seven years. So, yeah. That, How do you that manage as a fast-growing firm? Because, like, you know, it, it's a lot of work to, to manage all of that. You know, training well, them, giving them value, stru- hey, even I finding the structure of the program. And HR managers and learning and, and development managers. So I had overhead non-chargeable staff that were managing the whole process. So I didn't have to do very much at all. Wow. Okay. And this isn't a – because your firm was quite small. You said like you only had five staff, no? Yeah. So Before when it was Codex. in the practice, that was that was me kind of managing it and bumbling my way through and making it up as I, I went along. Actually, one thing that I did to help develop the program is that I made the interns that were doing the program basically contribute to the development or improvement of the program. If that Structure makes sense. of it. You know, yeah, to kind of pay okay. it forward. Gotcha. So well, what you're talking about is when you were at a codex, which was a lot more significant and, you know, a, a much bigger organization when you had all mm-hmm. the interns and structured programs, et cetera. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so it started uh, with like one intern, now, you know, six months um, to sort of like four at a time type of thing. Hmm. Now, you call yourself a, an accounting futurist. What are the best ideas you've come across or some that, you know, you've implemented or some that you would implement now if you're in your own firm or if you were to start a practice? Look, I think the, the work from home thing has just been exacerbated by the Rona. And like that is the quote, end quote, new normal. You know, so I think firms that were 100% cloud didn't even break stride when the Rona came and everyone had to work from home. I think firms that were not prepared for people working at home would have had a very difficult couple of months managing that. 
what's been crazy to watch is all of the firms like repatriating stuff back to the office. I just think that's insane. Like these mid-tier firms mm-hmm. um, uh, have gone, okay, cool, you're working from home for the next three months. Okay, cool, the risk is reduced, come back to the office. One, nobody wants to come back to the office after working from home for three months. And two, why would you do that? Like one of your biggest overheads in accounting practice like that is going to be rent and all of the you know associated costs with that that premises. Like why would you not pass that cost back to your employee when your employee is begging for that? It's just nuts. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, look, it's, it's been interesting to watch different firms take different approaches. Some have obviously given staff their flexibility now. So some, you know, they can work from home one or two days a week or stuff like that. But to be I honest, for my candidates, definitely not. Uh, well, actually, like, who knows right now? Everything keeps changing. Um, <laughs> we don't even know if we're going on holidays anymore with, uh, yeah, right. I'm from Sydney with the yep. new cluster thing. Uh, that's, that's put our holiday plans on potential hold again. Um, but we're seeing from candidates, some actually like want to go back to the office. They actually don't like the isolation. They at yeah, least want to be in the office a few days a week. I understand that in some, in some respects. But I think that the, the most important thing to sort of take away from that is like 100% cloud is now a, like, is, is a non-negotiable. You know, it's, it's an essential. Mm. And it's like, yeah, you can run some office. What's the best type arrangement? <laughs> Look, you know, we were debating mm-hmm. that at dinner last night. I, I I like zero tax, zero practice manager, but I also like uh, Lodge IT. Um, I've been using Lodge IT for about a, a year now with a with a, a friend of mine, and it is an absolute joy to to use. So I think in Australia, of those two, you know, take your pick. And what about like workflow, practice management, client engagement or attraction? Um, like what is the ultimate tech stack that you would employ if you're in a, starting out a new firm or growing a people, firm? People, people were debating that at dinner as well. Um, so I caught up with a whole bunch of like a Codex crew partners and staff uh, last night for dinner. And, you know, that, it was interesting just listening to, to them debate about what they're using and, uh, and so forth. I, I'm not confident sort of giving an answer on that because you've got to balance cost and, I guess, efficacy. You know, there is a lot of good, cheap solutions out there, and there's a lot of really good, expensive solutions out there. So it really comes down to sort of like what the the comfort in terms of like what that fixed is. cost. Yeah, absolutely. Because some people may – because in order to start a practice, you need to have like, you know, uh, uh, at least 10 grand in the bank um, to absorb the, the overheads hit for, a, you know, for six months. You know, you could probably, to use the top end solutions, you'd need like 50 grand in the bank, you know, because you're going to end up with these software subscriptions that are like $2,000, $3,000 a month just for software if you want the, the best that's on offer, you know. So mm. I think there's, yeah, you've got to balance that, you know. But, you know, some things that come to mind, I think practice ignition is is absolutely uh, essential. Um, that's like a not negotiable I don't use carbon, but I've got a colleague that does use carbon, super highly rated. And yeah, there's a, there's a few others that um, I can't think of off the top of my head. But yeah, you've got to balance out um, okay. sort of cost versus efficacy. Okay. Now, to say hindsight is 2020, what would you have done differently in uh, your career or your business? Um, probably not gone into business with other people. And that's why I say, like, default, I got lucky, it- Marcus not so lucky with the others so 
I think the default position is don't go into business with other people. Okay. You're talking about like the codex getting more partners on board, et cetera. No, 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 not the, the partners. Oh, the actual, business the partnerships. Directors. Yeah. Yeah. The so, directors. Yeah. Um, That's what I mean. Okay. I think, yeah, I think you don't need to go into partnership with anyone. So why should you? Why would you? Okay. Chris, I mean, I have a million more questions for you, but I know it's coming up. Uh, about yeah, time. We, we um, so I'll just ask you. Get out of this hotel. <laughs> yep. um, one more is there anything that's had the biggest impact on you? Like, yeah. Like, what's had the biggest impact on you today? Like, a person, a concept, a book, a tool, something that you just, either a gift you love, you talk about? Uh, the birth of my son. Um, I think that changed <laughs> everything in terms of focus and priorities. So, I, I don't know what people can take away from that, but I guess me as a person, I have completely changed um, in the last sort of three years since he's been born in terms of like, yeah, I guess where my focus is. And I think when people are on their deathbeds, I think they don't say, gee, I wish I spent more time at work. Very true. Chris, I'd love to have you back to finish our conversation, but I know you've got to go. So thank you so much for the time today. Have a lovely weekend and we'll catch up in the new year. You too. Talk to you later. Bye. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like our podcast and share it on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever it is you hang out so more people can benefit from these speakers. Also, please subscribe on our website so you get all of our latest episodes. And if there's anything else I can help you with or you have speakers you'd love to hear from or some feedback about the current episode, please feel free to send an email to michael at recruitmentexpert.com.au. Until then, take care and I look forward to connecting with you in the future.